Oh, Lord, we do just stand in awe of you. We are in awe of your love for us. We are in awe of your grace and your mercy that you pour out upon us. Lord, we, we so don't deserve your love and your mercy and your grace. Yet, for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross on our behalf. You considered it a joy to be with us for eternity. Lord, we're blown away by that. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, why don't we uh, all stand up and say hi to somebody around you that maybe you don't know, and we'll get into our study tonight. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And if you'll remember last time, if you were with us, we talked about how this is kind of a transitional point in the book of Genesis, where we've been talking about some different events that took place. We talked about creation and the fall and the flood. And now we're going to get into talking about some specific individuals. And uh, our first one that we're going to study through for the next uh, few weeks is Abram, who later God changes his name to Abraham. And uh, we'll pick up Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now as we finished up our, our time last week, we talked about the fact that as we get into this, and we're seeing this in chapter 12, this is either God repeating his command to Abram, or this is the recording of a conversation that God had with Abram several years before. Because if you'll remember, as we were finishing up chapter 11, it says in verse 31, Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. Now it sounds there that they're, they're leaving from there, and that Abram's father is actually the one that maybe heard from God and went out. But we, as we talked about last time, in Acts chapter 7, it's recorded for us that Stephen, when he's giving his testimony before he is stoned, before he is martyred for his faith, it says for us in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 2, it says, And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives, and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had moved him to his country, which you are now living. So we see that in a time previous to where we are now in chapter 12, because verse 32 tells us of chapter 11 that Terah, his father, died. 
So we're now at a later point. And God, I believe, is reiterating his command to Abram to continue going on, that he is not called to settle there. He calls him, he says, and I'm, I go forth from your country and from your relatives. We find out in Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 and 3, that his family, while they were in Ur, were idol worshipers, that they were following false gods and worshiping false gods. So he's saying, I want you to get away from your relatives, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Not following your dad to Haran, a land that I will show you. And that's all the information he gives him. He doesn't give him any more details about where he's going. It's an, he's stepping out in faith from here. God is basically saying, go when I say go and stop when I say stop. And we see in verses 2 and 3 that we see the beginning or the introduction, if you would, of the Abrahamic covenant, a covenant between God and Abraham. We're going to see when we get to chapter 12 that the covenant is actually made at that point. I'm sorry, chapter 15, the covenant is made. It's reaffirmed in chapter 17, and then it's renewed again with his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. So we see here that God is calling him out. He's saying, You're gonna, you have to step out in faith. He didn't say that the going was going to be easy. He didn't say that there weren't going to be any problems and difficulties along the way. But he did promise protection, if you'll look at what it says here. It says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. I'm going to take care of you, Abram. But Abram had to step out and go to where God was leading him to be under that protection, into the land that he would show him. Now, one thing I want you to notice, because it's going to come into play here shortly, but notice verses 2 and 3, it says, I will make you a great nation. He doesn't say, Abram, go out and make yourself a great nation. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. He doesn't say, go out and make a name for yourself. He says, I will do that. I will bless those who curse you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Don't you worry about taking it out on your enemies. Don't worry about doing all this. I will take care of that, God says. And we see in the end of, of verse 3, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is pointing towards all of the families of the earth, including us, because the seed that comes through Abram eventually is the Messiah. And it tells us in Galatians that the seed referred to here, the descendant, is Jesus himself. And we are blessed, amen, by his descendant, Jesus. Well, it goes on, verse 4. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. And if you remember when we were going through the table of nations, the Canaanites, descendants of Canaan, they're already here. They're already populating the land. They already have established themselves within the land as a growing nation, the Canaanites. Verse 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. 
We see a couple of times here when, when Abram settles down and he never builds a home. As we go through this, you're going to see as we study his life, he never builds a home. He sets up his tent and there are times where he stays lengthy periods of time in places, but he never establishes a home residence, if you would. But everywhere he goes, we're going to see as he settles in anywhere for any time frame, he builds an altar. He worships the Lord where he is settled. We see uh, that he was finally obedient, stepping out. And, and he's 75 years old when he leaves. His wife is 10 years younger than he is. We're going to see that coming up again, that she is 65. Hebrews 11.8 tells us that by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And we see in verse 7, when he built that altar there, it says that God appeared to him. Now, we don't know for certain if this is the first time that God physically appeared to anyone. We call that a theophany. That's a, a pre-incarnate uh, visitation of, of Christ coming down, God appearing to someone. But it's the first recorded one where we actually say that God appeared to anyone. And it says here that God appears to Abram, and he adds to the promise that he had given him in verses 2 and 3, the promise of the land now that he is in. He stopped along the way, as we see. Each time he stopped, again, he built an altar, and he checked in with the Lord, talking with him, checking in with him. The whole idea of maybe like a, a compass, a good idea. Of course, who uses a compass anymore? A GPS, right? I remember when, I, when we would go hunting a lot, and you get out into the woods, and every tree starts looking the same, and every place starts looking the same. You use a compass, and you check with that to see where you're going. And now, again, obviously, GPS systems just talk to you, but... Abram was checking in with the Lord, and God promised him land and descendants, but he's not going to fulfill those promises yet. They are promises yet to come. Abram was forced to walk by faith, not by sight, not by receiving those promises immediately, but he had to step out in faith, and God led him day by day. We never see an instance in the entire life that we go through with Abram where he was ever in need of anything where he ever needed protection that God did not provide, where he ever needed guidance and checked with the Lord and God was silent. Every time God directed him, God protected him, and God continually provided for us, for him. And the same is true with us. When God calls us out, sets us out, the saying Chuck Smith has said this many times, where God guides, God provides. Even though the promises that God gives us might seem delayed, we need to, as Abram did, step out in faith, walking day by day, trusting in him that his timing is perfect. A lot of times we start thinking, God, you're really slow in this. You're delayed. You should have taken care of this by now. His timing is perfect. While we wait, while we're following his direction, we should always be checking in with him. That's that idea of that continual prayer, that we are in that attitude of prayer, checking in with him and as we walk along. He will give us, as we move through towards his promises, daily opportunities for us to serve him, to witness for him, to share. We will go through times, as we're going to see Abram does, go through times of testing, proving times, but those are times where we need to remain patient, we need to persevere, and be, as Abram was for the most part, in submission to God and his following. Abram was called a man of faith, the father of faith. Chapter 15, it says that he believed God and his belief in God's promises was credited to him as righteousness. 
but he was a man nonetheless. And the Bible records his failures and his shortcomings as well. We see the good in Abram, a lot of it, but we see the bad in him as well. And I, for one, am thankful for that. It gives me hope. If the Bible was just full of superheroes that never did anything wrong, we would just throw up our hands and give up. But God doesn't do that. And that's one of the reasons why we can know that these are true, real stories. If you're going to sit down and write a book about a superhero, you're certainly not going to put in a bunch of flaws that they have. But the Bible records for us all of those things. And we see here, as we move on to verse 10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land. We're going to see... Abram's faith tested. The father of faith, we're going to see, fails this test. He falters in his faith. And it does seem that those areas that we feel that we are not vulnerable in are those areas that we can be most vulnerable in. The ones that we think are our strongest points can oftentimes show up at times and be our, our weakest points because why? We rely on our own strength, don't we? And God will test those areas. And he does here with Abram. It says, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Notice one thing Abram didn't do. It says the famine was in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt. It doesn't say he consulted with God. It doesn't say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Things are getting kind of rough around here. What do you want me to do in this situation? He doesn't consult with God. He looks at his circumstances around him and says, I'll fix the problem. I will. God told him in verse, chapter, verse 2 that we looked at that God will. Abram steps in here and says, well, I will. He focused on the circumstances around him and not the promise of God. We see that he walked by sight now and not by faith. He's looking at the circumstances around him, not trusting that God could take care of the situation. It hasn't rained for a while. Things aren't happening. How are we going to take care of this? We see an example on the other side of this in 1 Kings chapter 17 when we see Elijah. He had told the king it wasn't going to rain in the land until he again said it was going to rain. And there was a great famine in the land. But God said, you go to this brook Cherith, and I'll take care of you there. I'll have the ravens feed you there. God provided for him every day, everything that he needed sitting by this brook. Then God told him to move on, and he would meet this widow, and they were all out of flour and oil. She was going to make her last cake, and she said, I'm going to go eat, make this. My son and I are going to eat it, and we're going to die. And Elijah said, no, you're not going to die. God will provide. And through the entire time, Elijah stayed with her. They never ran out of bread or oil. Because Elijah trusted in God. But here we see Abram's faith faltering. He didn't trust in the Lord with this, and he took matters into his own hands. Everywhere that Egypt is mentioned throughout the, the Bible, it's a type, if you would, the typology. It's a picture, if you would, of the world. Abram, instead of trusting in God, runs to the world to solve his problem. And we see in verse 11, it says, It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I might live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. 
Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. What a mess. He's heading there. He makes the decision to take his family to Egypt. Just before he gets there, he start, it dawns on him, you know what? My wife is beautiful. And I'm going to run into a problem with all of these Egyptians. They don't fear God. They, they were known for their practices, their pagan practices, their sexual practices. And he starts panicking. He starts freaking out. And he says, here's the deal. Just tell them you're my sister. They'll buy that and they'll let me live and almost basically saying, you know, you're on your own. But I'm going to live and I'll be okay. We see that he panicked. And he tells a lie. Now, we're going to find out in uh, Genesis chapter 20 that it's a half lie. It's a half truth, half lie, because Sarai is actually his half sister. So he wasn't completely lying, she was his sister, but his intent was to deceive. And we have to be very careful with that because so often we can twist the truth just a little bit, mix enough truth in there to where I'm still telling the truth, but our intent is to deceive. And that's obviously what Abram's descent was. He panics and he tells a lie. Raises the question, is it ever okay to lie? Is it ever okay to lie? This is something that I'll let you wrestle with, but... Is it ever okay to lie? The Bible tells us that we are not to bear false witness, that we are not to lie. But we look through history and we see examples of where people lied for good causes. Corey Tenboom, the German officials came to her house. Are you harboring Jews in your home? And she lied and said no. The, the, we see Rahab, the harlot, in, in Joshua where they, she hid the spies, the Jewish spies, up on her roof, and they came and asked her, have you seen them? And she said, yeah, they took off that direction, and everybody left, and then she let them down out the window. We see it later on when we talk about Moses, when we get to Exodus, where the, 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 Egypt, the Israel, or, I'm sorry, Jewish uh, maids that were helping deliver babies, they were told to kill the, any males that were born by the Egyptians. They told them to kill all the male babies, and they wouldn't do it. And when they were asked, they said, man, the, the Jewish women, by the time we get there, they've already had their kids. We can't do anything. They lied. Is it ever okay to lie? You could look at those examples and say, yeah. But bottom line is, really? If we lie, we're basically saying that we don't trust God in the situation, aren't we? Like I said, I'll let you wrestle with this a little bit. I have been. I, there, there are stories that have been told about people smuggling Bibles across the border into areas where Bibles are illegal in trunks, in, in their trunks of their cars. And they get pulled over and they're asked, open up your trunk. And instead of trying to lie or cover it up, they open up the trunk and God blinds their eyes. And they're able to continue on, trusting God that he's going to take care of it. I guess the point that I really want to make is that it's a slippery slope. And we can easily get caught up in, in, into the thought process that, yeah, it's, it's okay because it's a, ultimately a good cause. And before you know it, you're in a big mess like Abram was. Can you imagine the dilemma? By the time this starts all unfolding, Abram's got to be thinking, man, what did I get us into? 
What did I, what did I do? I, I, I should have stayed where we were. He was where he shouldn't be. He was doing what he shouldn't be doing. And he's digging the hole deeper by lying about it. And if we look at verse 16, though, it looks like it's kind of paying off. Not only is his wife safe and him safe, but they start acquiring things. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. It all looks good. Things are, are, are going along pretty well. Well, if, you, if you're a note taker, circle female servants and out in your margin write Hagar. That's going to come back to bite him later on. He's in a huge mess. Something that he can't fix. He's in way too deep now. But we see God come to the rescue. Verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. God protected his promise. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you tell me that she was your sister, not your wife? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Abram was helpless to fix his situation, but God wasn't. They seemed to get away with it here. But at what cost? What cost? They lost all respect from the Egyptians. Any respect that they had gained in the situation while they were there, completely gone now. Their opportunity to tell them about their God, completely ruined. Their witness totally destroyed. What's he going to say when they're on the way out of town? I serve the faithful, true, and living God. You can trust him. I don't, but you can. What, what kind of witness do they have? And not just to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. Can you imagine what Abram's servants are thinking as they're going away now with their tail between their legs, looking at this man that they're following, this, this one that keeps telling them about this God and the promises that he has? Imagine what they're thinking. Imagine what his wife is thinking. Imagine what Lot is thinking as they're going away. The same is true with us. If we lie, if we deceive, if we buy into practices in the world, if we go along with those types of things to help our own cause along and our own situation along, and then people find out that we're Christians, it destroys our testimony. We can't share openly and faithfully then with, with our coworkers, with our neighbors. But what about our family influence? Bill collector calls and you tell your kids, tell them I'm not home. What are we saying to our kids? What about younger believers? If you've been walking with the Lord for a while, I hope that you're discipling some, some younger people, some new people in the faith. And if something like this comes along and they see that, that this happens, what does that do to your ability then to disciple them? It's an important thing to consider. Any decision that we, that we make, it's good. I mean, you've probably all done this. You're going to sit down and make an important decision, and hopefully you've been praying about that decision, but you sit down and you make a list of pros and cons, right? Anybody ever done that? Sit down, this is the good things that could happen, this is the bad. You should probably put a column in that, that the eternal consequences column. What, how is this going to affect others? How is this going to affect my witness? How is this going to affect my work for the Lord? Well, we see 
After God rescues them, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife, all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. So they're heading out of town. Can you imagine that camel ride home? Guys, you ever had that where you're driving along pretending you don't see it out of the corner of your eye and just that? Can you imagine the silence that was for a while? Awkward. You know what? Real quickly, though. Wives, your husbands are flawed human beings. I'm one. And we're going to make bad decisions at times. We're going to make really stupid decisions at times. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, speaking to wives, it says, But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. An incredible example, Sarah. It doesn't record it for us. She maybe said it, but it doesn't say it. She didn't give the I told you so comment. She didn't undermine him. She submitted to him, even though his idea was ridiculously stupid. Now, when I, when I say that, I'm not saying that you as ladies don't voice your opinions. You should. We have to hear that. Husbands, if you don't agree with that, talk to me afterwards. We need your input. But as the leader of the household, as the spiritual leader of the family, God holds us accountable for the decisions that we make. And as wives, you are called to submit to our authority as husbands. Now again, it's not submitting to do to go into grievous sin or that type of stuff. And if your husband asks you to tell somebody you're his sister and you're going into this type of stuff, come see me. I'll, we'll take care of that. <laughs> but there's a great example of a godly woman here who followed her husband, even though she, she couldn't have agreed with this whole idea, but she went along with it because he said to do it. Well, we see verse 2, and by the way, again, God protected her, and he will you as well. Verse 2, it says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. It says that Abram was very rich. There's nothing wrong with being rich. It's just as long as that riches doesn't have you. It's, it's, it's okay to have things as long as they don't possess you. That goes with everything, our work, our, our ministry, our families. But it, it tells us here something great. I, I love this because we see what happens. He goes back. He, he, he left God. He turned his back on God and went to the world, to Egypt. Now he's turning his back on Egypt and he's returning to the Lord. He went back to Bethel. He went back to the altar. He went back with confession and, and repentance and, and restoration was done. Are you in a situation where you aren't where you used to be with God? 
You, you were walking with him, and things were going great, and you were hearing from him, and things were going well, but you've gone off into the world? Bible tells us, 1 John 1, 9, if that is you, if, if, if you have sin in your life, just confess that sin. God is faithful and just, and he will forgive that sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Go back to that altar. Go back before him. Revelations, Revelation 2, 4, and 5 says this, Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus. It says, but this I have against you, that you have left your first love. And he doesn't stop there. It's not a condemnation. He goes on, he says, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Just repent and go back. Repenting is turning away from your sin and turning to God. And that's what Abram did. He turned away from Egypt and he turned back to God. He went back to Bethel. He went back to the altar. And there got was restored with his relationship with the Lord. A beautiful picture of repentance. Well, verse 5, Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Lot had a lot of stuff, too. He was, he was rich and wealthy, and had accumulated possession, possessions just like Abram did. And it caused strife, not only between the two of them, but between their people that they were working, that they had as servants. And fighting amongst Christians is one of the most horrible witnesses to the outside world. It tells us here in verse 7 that the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Here again, another opportunity to share how great and awesome God is, and they're destroying that by fighting amongst each other. Jesus calls his body to unity. We have far more as Christians to be united about than we do to be divided about. And Keep that in mind again, because we're not always going to get see things eye to eye. And we see again here an, ex, an awesome example now of Abram learning a lesson, trusting in God, and he takes immediate action. We see an amazing demonstration of humility here. He doesn't fix blame. He doesn't try to point out, well, your servants are the cause of this. You're the problem. He doesn't pull rank. He could. He was the elder. He was, he was the leader. George Washington was quoted as saying, when there is an elder man and a younger man in the same room, the elder man should never mention it, and the younger man should never forget it. I like that. Abram didn't mention it. He didn't say, what are you doing? I'm the boss around here. He completely humbled himself and gave Lot the choice. He said, you pick. 
We have the whole land in front of us. You pick. You go this way, I'll go that way. You go that way, I'll go this way. You choose. You choose. And Lot should have deferred back again because Abram is the elder person in the group. He is the leader. He should have deferred back, but he didn't. He seized the opportunity. And looking through the eyes of the world, he chose the best land for himself. He said, I want that, that beautiful pasture over there. The area that's described now, if, if you're going with us to Israel or if you've ever been there, it's a desolate wasteland now. But back then, it was a fertile, beautiful land. It's re, he, he, he refers to it as the, like the Garden of the Lord, like the Garden of Eden, fertile and beautiful. Sin is very enticing. It puts itself in beautiful packaging. And Lot was tempted by that. It tells us that, that he was go, looking towards Sodom. Verse 13 tells us that the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinners against the Lord. They knew that. Lot knew that. But he chose that anyway. Sodom was already notorious for its wickedness, but it was a gamble that Lot was willing to take. And maybe again, that can be like some Christians. Maybe you're in that situation or you have been or you know someone who is that rationalizes this. Lot was probably saying, yeah, I know it's wicked down there, but it's a beautiful land. I'll be able to be successful down there and I'll be able to witness to those people. I'll be able to, I'll be able to tell them about God. It's a dangerous game to play. And Lot says, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes, but the problem is Lot only lifted his eyes as high as the horizon. He only looked out to the world. Abram learned his lesson in Egypt. He learned the fact that no matter where I go, God promised he's going to take care of me. No matter where I end up, as long as God is leading me, guiding me, directing me, I'm not going to have to worry about it. So Abram lifted his eyes all the way to the Lord and trusted in him. Again, we talk, I talked a little bit about it earlier. Abram never settled down, never built a home that he was going to stay in permanently because Hebrews 11.10 tells us he was looking for a city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. He was looking forward to that eternal promise that God had given him. Well, now we see verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. Now it tells us that Lot here didn't move immediately into Sodom. He just moved towards that direction. He set his tents up close by. He probably had reservations knowing how wicked they were. Their reputation preceded them. It says it moved his tents as far as Sodom. He got, he got close by, but not in the city, but in the proximity, close enough to enjoy the advantages of the city itself, but not all the way in. And again, so often we in our Christian lives, in our walk, we can try to do that too. We want the spiritual blessings of walking with God, but we want the worldly blessings of fellowshipping with the world, kind of having the, the best of both worlds, if you would. The problem is you can't have it both ways. Neither side will let you have it both ways. God won't and the world won't. And I don't know if you've heard this said before. It's truly, and I can back this up, the most miserable man in the world is not the man who is completely sold out to the world. 
the most miserable man is the one who tries to do this, who tries to walk the line, who tries to live both lives. Because if you do, you're going to have too much of the world in you to enjoy fellowship with God. And you're going to have too much of God in you to enjoy fellowship in the world. And it's the most miserable existence you can have. I lived it, and I know it. And we can try again to convince ourselves, even just dabbling here and there, but it's disastrous. And there's a progression. Again, you're either going one way or the other. You can't walk this tightrope. And we see the progression, unfortunately, play out in Lot's life. Here we see him moving his tents toward Sodom, setting up outside camp. But when we get to chapter 14, verse 12, it tells us that Lot was living in Sodom at that time. And then when we get to chapter 19, verse 1, it says that Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. The people who sat in the gate were the governors, the judges. He had worked his way up the political ladder in Sodom. And it has tragic consequences that we'll see when we get there. You can't have it both ways. You can't walk that line. Well, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look, look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and its breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came to dwell by the oaks of Mamre, which, is, which are in Hebron. And there again he built an altar to the Lord. God speaks to Abram again, decades after the first time he talked with him. And we see finally here, if you look back again to what God told him, he said in his commands, I want you to move forth from the country, away from your relatives, away from your father's house. He says, as we talked about in the Acts chapter, leave your country and your relatives. Here we finally see full obedience from Abram. Lot is now gone. He finally has all of his family now removed. Full obedience, finally. Partial obedience is disobedience. If we do partially of what God commands us to do, we are disobedient. Now, we can often mistake God's blessings for the fact that we're, we're doing okay with that. Don't mistake God's blessings for his approval. He will continue to bless you as a Christian, but he's not, that doesn't mean he's approving of something that if he told you to do something different and you're doing that or he told you not to do something and you are, that's not his approval. He wants obedience. He desires obedience over sacrifice, the Bible tells us. So is there any area in your life that you're not fully obedient to God in? And it doesn't have to be outright sin. There are going to be things in your life that God will tell you specifically, I don't want you to do that. Not necessarily a sin, but I want to separate you from that. I want you to do this and not that. Again, you can justify it by saying, well, that's not a sin. The Bible doesn't say that that's sinful, but God has placed it on your heart that he wants you to be different. You're not hearing a new direction from God? Do like Abram did. Go back 
to that altar and say, all right, Lord, I'm going to need to have you repeat some things because I've forgotten it, maybe. What is it that I'm not doing that you've asked me to do? Because God's not going to give you more to do if you haven't done what he's already asked you to do. Now, one thing that we can always do is beat ourselves up over this, thinking that God's mad and he's just waiting to discipline us. He's not mad. He just wants you to be obedient. He just wants you to learn, to grow in your relationship with him. It's, it's like, I love the illustration of a, of a child learning to walk. It's, a, it's, it's, it's amazing when your kids start taking their first steps and you're all excited when they fall down. You don't yell at them. You don't spank them for falling down. You help them get back up and cheer them along as they take their next steps. And that's, that's God in our spiritual walk. He's not waiting to club us. He wants us to get back up and walk. His mercies are new every morning. And praise God, they never run out. We see here that God promises again that this land that you, are, that you see, this is your land. He gives it to Abram here. As far as you can see, north, south, east, and west, walk it, the length and the breadth. This is your land. I'm giving it to you forever, by the way. Not a, not a time frame. And what God gives, man should never try to divide. Anyone that is seeing what's gone on in the years over in the Middle East where they're trying to divide up the land and give it to the Palestinians and all this kind of stuff is directly against what God said. This isn't, you don't have the right to divide it up and separate it. God gave it to Abram's descendants. And it says that his descendants will be as the dust of the earth can't be numbered. By the way, again, don't have time to go into it in great detail tonight, but that includes us. That includes us because, again, as I mentioned, the seed singular is Jesus. And all of us who have placed our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus for our salvation are descendants of Abraham. We're grafted in to the Jewish nation because of that. Well, we'll stop there. Uh, we'll pick up in chapter 14 next week. It's interesting, though. It says that he settled in Mamre. Now, this is going to be his home for a little while. He's going to settle down here a little bit. Again, he doesn't build a house. It's still going to live in tents. But it's interesting as we look through this, and as we've talked, as we've gone through Genesis, the enemies of the gospel, the enemies of the word of God, the enemies of God will continually try to say that this is just a book of stories, that it's, that it's not really true. A hundred years ago, Many people would look at the story, the couple of chapters that we just read and said there is no such place as Sodom. There's no such place as Ur. There's no such, there's no such place as Bethel and Shechem and Haran. There's no place, they've never found those. Guess what? We've found them all. We've found them all. The archaeologists now have discovered all of these places. And there's evidence, again, archaeological evidence that they were around in thriving cities and, and communities when Abram was alive. Archaeological proof that they can't refute. And they, so much for the fact that they think that back then, you know, language was limited. They, some people, at some point, again, 100 years ago, they were saying that they didn't even have legible writing then, so the Bible is obviously false. They found in Ur and I didn't get, bring all of the statistics. I didn't think I'd have time to go through it, and I don't. So I'll just cover it real fast. They found a library in Ur. And it wasn't just like there was just a, bunch, a few smart people. They found literature and different things in, in all sorts of houses all the way around. It was a thriving society. It wasn't some uncivilized place. So again, 
We don't have to apologize for our faith. We don't have to feel like we have to somehow do some mystical kind of thing to, to talk back to these people. We have the facts. It's been proven. Every time an archaeological discovery is made, it backs up what the Bible says. Not once has there been one that proves the Bible wrong. So, well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your, again, your amazing love, your grace, your mercy. And Lord, as we go through and we study the life of Abram, Abraham, uh, Lord, we are blessed by the faith of this man, how he, he did step out in faith and follow you. And Lord, we want faith like that. Lord, as we even see how he made mistakes and stumbled along the way, we see your incredible grace and mercy again displayed. And Lord, if there's anyone here that has stumbled, that has strayed away, that has tried to walk the line and, and live in, in both the world and in fellowship with you, Lord, again, speak to their heart now and let them know you're not condemning them. You're not coming down on them. You just want the fellowship restored fully, completely. Lord, we thank you for your, your love and your mercy. We, we, we call upon that. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, thanks a lot.